Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark Labusk here for the Simply Practically Human podcast. And my guest today were uh, were two incredible facilitators and human beings I got to meet at Harvard Kennedy School as part of the um, art and practice of leadership development way back in 2014, Maxime Fern and Michael Johnston, who are the founders of Vantage Point Consulting and been working together for a very long time and also the the co-authors of a book that they've just released, which um, is an incredible book, just come out, called Provocation as Leadership. And this is going to be an absolute eye-opener for you. I loved it. Um, I know you will. This will get you to start to look at provocation as something very, very different to the way you look at it today. That's all I'm going to tell you because there's so much education, there's so much knowledge, there's so much wisdom and generosity in what Michael and Maxime share. So we'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusk talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Hey, I am delighted to be joined today by the executive directors of Vantage Point Consulting and the co-authors of Provocation as Leadership, Maxime Fern and Michael Johnson. Thank you very much for joining me. Such a pleasure to to, uh, catch up with you again. Yeah, and thanks for being there. Yeah, and look, it's been a while. I think 2014 was the last time we caught up in another country over at Harvard Kennedy School with the art and practice of adaptive leadership, the great work of uh, Ron Eifertz and Marty Linsky and co. A lot's been going on since then. My starting point for any of my conversations is about first impressions because I I just think there's a real humanity in getting a sense of what did someone think of you when they first met you? So as the guests, you both get to go first. We met way back in 2014. What were your first impressions? Now, my heart rate has gone through the roof right now. (laughs) What were your first impressions of Mark LaBusque? What I do remember is you were part of a, quite a large Australian contingent where there was an enormous variability and you were one of the more vocal ratbags nice. in the best sense of the word. And so I do remember you and I do remember being struck, Mark, I think at that time you were either in the middle of your transition from OzPost into your private practice trying to figure it out and I was struck by the strength of your aspiration for what you were going to try and do. And even though we haven't spoken, I've been watching you with admiration from a distance for long, all these years. But I do remember that. Thank you. And for me, I remember a sense of connection and relief, which I always felt when there was a contingent of Australians. And um, I appreciated you saying it like you saw it. And to hell with what? Uh, the consequences were. I found that trustworthy. And over the years with the Australian contingent, I I came to ask myself what I was, you know, how culturally bound I was that I actually needed my own countrymen and the things that I valued to feel grounded. Thank you very much. Uh, There was a huge Australian contingent. And look, there was a lot of people, as I recall, from Melbourne as well. I mean, you know, Jared Penner and... um, I think uh, Gabrielle Dolan, Michelle Sales, there was a heap from other states as well. It just seemed like a a, a big group. And it, it was nice to be 
I guess, going to say around your own, but geez, I learn a lot from the other cultures and, and yes. other people in the room. It was such a, it is a life-changing experience for me. My first impressions of you both, it was like very deliberate. You came into the room and there was this sort of, I was watching you and thinking, I'm going to have to watch out for these two because <laughs> something's going to happen. They, they, it was, it was, there was a warmth to it, but there was also this bit of trepidation of what's going to happen. And I remember at one stage, I reckon it was about day two, maybe day three. I'm not sure these are the exact words, but at one stage, I think, Michael, you said to me, you haven't contributed much so far, mate. And I just looked at you and I thought, you bastard. But I knew what you were doing. And then I think, Maxine, you and I had a, at a, I think at one stage in a room, I said something like, you need to be kill or be, it's either kill or be killed. And you used a beautiful term that I'd heard from my parents at times. It was like, why do you have to be such a bother boy all the time? And that triggered me again. But I went, you know what? These two are telling me what I need to hear and not what I want to hear. And, and what came out of that over those days was absolute respect. And I just do want to say thank you because you've helped me to do what I do today, which is, I, as I say, embrace, I say the art of what you do so well is provoking people with a, with a purpose. So there you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> there it began, hey? It did. Those are good, good memories. And it's interesting that those are the memories that we share because I think it actually does go to the heart of the art of provocation. Yeah, which we're going to get into talking about. Before we do, you had a, a, an event just this week, the launch of your book, and that I've seen some um, some of the the pictures put up on LinkedIn and other places. The sense of community that that I'm feeling that came from that, and so disappointed that I missed it. How are you two feeling right now after you know 48 hours on? How are you feeling after that event? Look, um, is is just a proper word? Yes. Um, it uh, was so lovely to be folded into that community in such a a caring and acknowledging way. It it I think it it's a highlight for both of us yeah. because as a community of practitioners, we've struggled with the stuff of how do we make it more likely that Australian adaptive leadership practitioners are recognised along with our international colleagues, and that hasn't been easy work. And so it was as if it was down tools and recognition in the room in um, quite a wonderful way. Magnificent. And for you, Michael? Well, you know, I I felt um, very moved. I tend to be someone who can be struck by other people's warmth and kindness and uh, was on the verge of, I felt quite emotional most of the night for a number of reasons. One was the the 50-odd, 45, 50 people who were there represented the past. So there were contingents from uh, Apple going back to about 2010. Yep. A big group from 2012. So those people who've had a long, there were our Ali, the Australian Adaptive Leadership Institute folk, a core group there, and there are a whole bunch of younger people who are working in the area of leadership out there in the community. So I felt very touched by the past, present, and future there, and both because it was nice to get the recognition and to know that the book might be useful to people, 
but also it matters to us how this work gets continued. Our oldest daughter was there with us as well. So that was the icing on the cake. And and um, you shared just before we started some of your daughter's reflections. What Was there anything that surprised you there, with the, how, well, how she took it in? I think our surprise was her surprise because she had not seen us as the people there saw and acknowledged us. And it seems to be a rite of passage that we spend a time in our lives where our parents are just nuisances yep. and we get on with our own lives. And the idea of accepting or seeing your parents as fellow travellers to be observed in wonder or all the other um, shades of human connection was very, very special for mm. us and um, I think deepened our relationship with our daughter. Fantastic. My middle daughter, she's 27, Amy, she continually asks me, are you on the balcony or the dance floor today, Dad? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, okay. Or change your stories, another one she throws out. But it is nice when they take a bit of a bit of an interest and go, maybe you're just not this crusty old dude, Mark or Dad, that that I just thought you were. So I, I love to hear those stories. Hey, um, a little bit of your backstory for both of you would be great because I love our listeners to get a sense of who the human being is and and perhaps then what what has sent you down this amazing pathway of creating these communities globally to to understand the importance of provocation. So, Maxine, perhaps you kick us off. Wow. Um, I guess, you know, when you ask that question, I think about my own background as an only child surrounded by grandparents and parents and pretty much learning to be in my own world getting to be quite free at age six and seven to wander the paddocks and find people and animals and trees. But always, I saw myself as an outsider, but looking in and being fascinated with other people. And it feels like such an indulgence to get to do the work that I do because I'm doing my ideal ideal work. Yeah, I think pivotally for me and uh, maybe for Michael, certainly for our practice together, was our time as uh, systems family therapists. Yes. Where we learned really viscerally and importantly to move from seeing a person as a problem, which is usually what you know people bring to you, what's wrong with this kid or husband or whatever, from that to looking at the system that's actually keeping the problem behaviour in place. And that, for us, was both enormously freeing personally and I think to the people we worked with, but that enabled us to make the connection with the Harvard program. Yeah, lovely. Michael, for you? Well, I, I grew up in, in New Zealand with a, an Austrian Jewish mother who had escaped with my grandfather after the Anschluss in Austria, after the Nazi invasion, and a lapsed Catholic English working class father. So I lived between these two cultures and from a very early age learned to dance between their different views of power and authority. So a mother who said, because you're Jewish, keep your head down, uh, which I did for a long time, 
and a father who said, they're all dangerous, fight the bastards. Yep. So I, I lived in that. And I remember I told this story the other night. I remember being at school, maybe 14 years old, and for the first time realizing the, the power of people in charge and the status quo. When I started to ask questions in social studies classes and got hauled off to the headmaster for being disruptive. And I could see how the teachers and the school system closed me down and closed down to reinforce what they knew. And I think that kind of idea of seeing patterns, seeing how the status quo contains, has kind of been with, with me. And it connects to Max M and I, who we're a blended family. We got together a little later in life. We're both second marriage. We've now been together for um, 40, True. 40 plus years. Wow. As a blended family. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So it's uh, and we built a therapy practice and um but that that origin of recognizing the power that people in authority have and seeing how the status quo works to keep things as they are, I think has informed a lot of what we what we do. Yeah. And and in a way our our origin stories and our professional early lives have all led to us doing this work and being being interest in provocation as if you like the not only a means but probably a critical essential leadership means for testing and challenging the status quo i did say i might i gave you some questions but something's absolutely been triggered in me now as you've spoken the pandemic that we've we're still going through but been going on for you know a bit of time there's a lot of talk about things needing to change and things do need to change. And I, I actually think at times some of us, some humans, and I, I, I put this down to going across the Harvard Kennedy School to understand this, is that the old system is very clever at lurking in the shadows for its time before it bounces back and looks to take its rightful place again. What, what are your thoughts around What's going on with that system at the moment? It didn't seem to want to bounce back really quickly and take back position number one, but I'm feeling it's slowly creeping out of the shadows right now to do that. Do you have any thoughts around that? If you put our work in context, of course, it comes from Ronnie and, and Marty's adaptive leadership. Yep. The piece that we've emphasized and think is important now is provocation because provocation goes to being able to wiggle us out of exactly what you say, the returning status quo. We are so desperate to get back to what we know and to what is normal. We had an example here the other day. We're in the process of moving house and, uh, we did what we thought we've always done, got all the bookcases and stuff outside and filing cabinets, and we called the Salvation Army to come get the stuff. And they arrived and they said, actually, nobody wants bookcases anymore and nobody's using filing cabinets. And away they went. And I found myself saying, well, what are people doing with their books? And what, they don't have paper anymore? And I could hear this querulous, disbelieving non-accepting person, and I caught myself, you know, that 
things have actually changed. I I don't know what the root story of all of that is, but it was a reminder to how we work in provocation, but I don't want to be provoked. I want stuff to be as it always has been. So I think it makes the work of provocation even more pertinent and important, but it reminds us to do it with love. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get to that too, I think, because I think that's one of the things I read in that recent article about the nature of provocation that doesn't necessarily need to be seen as something that's negative, but something more positive. Michael, did you have anything to add around that, the, the system and its ability to... I think you're right about the status quo is, is, is incredibly powerful and has a life of its own, and it's, it's deeply comforting and reassuring to know that it's there. But I do think... We have to see what's happening now with a sl- with a longer time frame. That the kind of the tectonic plates are shifting. It just happens that the pandemic has occurred at a time when other things are kind of shifting as well. So, you know, increased authoritarianism around the world. You know, the rise of Trump, Putin, uh, China, and the like. The U.S.'s place in the world. All the issues around identity and gender and race, all those things are shifting. It seems to me it's not an accident that the call for the voice in Australia is happening at this point in time. And it shows that around major things, the status quo doesn't shift quickly. No. But sometimes there are events that do push us, that provoke us as countries, as as a globe, uh, to move more quickly. And then I think the question is, to what extent are... we, collectively, are people in leadership roles, is government uh, harnessing those opportunities. And we saw a lot of so-called change during the pandemic. Much of it was kind of false start. But we do write in the book, in a couple of the case studies, of how some organisations had tried to harness the disturbance from the external provocation that was going on in the world. Yeah to build internal momentum, internal provocation, to get more done and to really change the way things uh, are done and thought. But it's difficult work. As you say, it lurks in the shadows and comes back. Yeah. I'm really pleased to hear that because sometimes people, I don't know, I know at times Marty's talked about this thing, um, it's like the relentless optimism and the brutal realism, and that really sticks with me, is where do we find that space where we can get at this work, which is hard work, which is adaptive work, which is the long game of human, as I call it. Where did you discover this power of provocation as a leadership tool? I, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption it didn't just pop out one day and it's like, oh, shit, provocation's a thing to do. But what what happened over time? Well, I think probably the origins for us were in our therapy work because as systems family therapists, one of the guiding principles is A, you create an environment in which people will allow you to work with them and you meet them where they are. And two, rather than accept the explicit or tacit invitation from families to keep things calm, to calm them down, family therapists understand you actually have to increase pressure. In other words, you temporarily create more crisis to destabilize the way families operate in order to help them find new ways to calm down. And I think we learned the power 
um, of provocation. We also trained with a guy called Frank Farrelly 30 years ago yeah. who wrote a book called Provocative Therapy. And so it kind of started there, and that's why we found such a good match with Ronnie and Marty when we met them 22 years ago. And working with families, individuals, and then increasingly organisations, we learned that sometimes the work was just to stop. You know, most of us want to be helpful. We want to make suggestions. We want to provide solutions. But just to stop and allow people to feel what's going on for them, what they're holding, what they desire, what they're prepared to offer, to actually hold the system to see what it's got and to not inadvertently remove people's agency and power by plopping things in. Sometimes just holding and waiting increases the pressure, allows people to see what they've got and begins them doing the work, which, of course, if they can do, they remain in charge of. For some people, we were very surprised. We sometimes are surprised still that doing nothing, apparently, is provocative. To simply be witness and to hold is very a different experience for many people. I think we also learned, and this I think goes to our way of thinking about testing, challenging and provoking, we learned that people are not as fragile as, as we often make out that they are. And as therapists, care is you know, a deep, important value, as it is as leadership facilitators and consultants. Um, but care isn't enough because often people in our game care so much that they cripple the people that they're working with. And, you know, we learn sometimes through trial and error that trusting that clients, participants, leaders, those who come to leadership programs or who you coach, let alone those who you manage and lead an organisation, are much more resilient than we give them credit for and can tolerate more shit happening to them. I love that. Often... The senior, most senior person that I'm dealing with in a client base, they want to give me the two minutes on every person. <laughs> you know, Michael's yeah. a bit, bit of an introvert. He's a bit quiet, but, you know, just be careful with him. And then Maxime will she'll take a bit of time to warm up. But And it's like, thank you, but spare me that too, because I think that's where we start to lose that, what you just talked about, the ability to realise that we are far more capable mm. to tolerate discomfort than we give ourselves credit, which which opens us up to the provocative leadership. When can it move, though, from provocative to destructive? What are your thoughts around that? Because I reckon trial and error, I reckon I've stuffed a few of these up and have got a bit destructive. What happens there? God knows, but <laughs> who hasn't stuffed it up in doing this work? Who hasn't stuffed it up in relationships in general? It's actually quite challenging to learn how to do this because it's counterintuitive to a lot of what we're taught. And we've noticed sometimes in helping others into this work that the idea can arise that you just have to be brutal and push them about and, you know, the heart is forgotten. So practice, maturity, willingness to acknowledge getting it wrong, 
I think are essential. Yeah. yeah look, I would add, um, we've got a lot to thank Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Vladimir Putin for because amongst others, those three have shown us how not to use provocation. The qualities of their provocation is that it's designed to divide and reinforce one perspective over another. So it has a kind of a hegemony to it. Yeah. It's based on a sense of um, an absolute certainty about how the world should be and is going to be, and therefore is divisive and is designed to demonize and put down other people. So that helps us get clearer about what purposeful, productive provocation is and should be. So it is designed, sometimes it's designed to push an individual to think about their own status quo, how they think about things. More importantly, how systems, teams, organizations, societies um, are holding holding themselves back. But it is about a, a common good, about bringing people together and about learning and growth. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't mess it up from time to time. Yep. You know, so, you know, we've got quite a few anecdotes in the book about instances where we went too far and what, what can be learned from that. Yeah, yeah. and in, in a way, language, English language, maybe languages more widely, don't serve us well in this instance. We spent some time in the book talking about rehabilitating the word provocation <laughs> Because most of us think of it as being, being rude and nasty. You know, we seek to perturb and the words aren't easily available mm. to express it. I think that's why we're at pains in the book to talk about provocation in a whole, a totally different way, a, a much wider range of what it means to be provocative. Yeah. And we use a wider range of examples from a whole lot of fields. You know, so for example, we tell the story of, um, Hannah Gatsby, and how her show Nanette is such an exemplar of powerful provocation. And she uses the idea, when she was interviewed, she said, in doing Nanette, I broke the mould. Now, for us, that's a powerful definition of what good provocation is. So, you know, she had something to say. She's a brilliant comedian but an even more brilliant reader of the zeitgeist and what's going on in the world of misogyny and gender and so on, and used her presence and her story to really push people to break the mould of what comedy is and can do, for example. Yeah. And in a way that we learned a lot from thinking about her and what she's done. Because it's both an excruciating and healing process, and we laugh as we go. And that's what I that's why I think this works so critical is that the, the range of emotions that the individual, the human can feel going through this, it can be at one stage liberating and then the next minute it's like terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and that's why I think it's such important work. I love the reference before Maxime to the fact that it needs heart, because I think this is where people can start to get out of this idea that Provocation sits in your bad news filing cabinet in your head, and perhaps it can also sit in your good news filing cabinet because it comes from a place of good intention, even though at the time the person's being subjected to it yeah. may, not, may not feel that. So I love that reference. What conditions in the workplace lead themselves to this provocative approach? I'm sure there are many, but if maybe if you shared 
one or two? What came to mind immediately is where we might find a group invites us to help them make progress on a particular purpose. But when we get there, we find they're kind of impossible to hold or to find and their energy isn't in what they say they ask for. Yep. So I think, you know, the conditions, one of the conditions that is an indication is that the energy has gone out of what they're doing. And it is, um, our experience is when we find that, it's often as if at some level they know (laughs) that there is work to do and they ask us to help them change and at the same time, the very same time, they demand we don't do anything (laughs) that will make them likely that they will. So that, that condition of loss of energy, ambivalence, demand and resistance, you know, it's a set of conditions that we see quite commonly. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for. Oh, but- that, that's amazing. Like seriously, what, what was coming to mind for me was that if they were expecting you to turn up with a um, with three <laughs> steps to adaptive glory through provocation, that ain't going to happen. But th- that appetite, we want to do it, we want to do it, and then they get in the room and potentially have an oh shit moment and go, hang on a minute, this mm. isn't what we signed up for. We want we want to disturb, but we want to keep things the same. We actually had um, an almost client uh, many years ago. The CEO of an organisation explained what he needed and asked us to say what we would do. And so we wrote to him and you know gave an initial proposal. And uh, he called us in and he said oh, I I don't actually want this. You said that my people will be harder to manage. (laughs) I don't want that. And we had a great conversation and he concluded and we agreed with him wholeheartedly. They were not ready. No. And so it was a fabulous thing to be able to say, lovely to meet you Mm. and this is not now Mm. for you. I think your question is a really good one about what are the conditions because it goes to you know, provocation is part of a, a suite, albeit an essential part of exercising leadership. Wherever you are as a human leader, you know, to use your language, Mark. But I think there are some signs and conditions, and again, we elaborate on this in the book. You know, one of them is there is a genuine yearning and expression, a desire for learning and growth. Now, people who turn up in your programs, many of them come for that. Some have been told to come people who come to leadership programs. That's why the Hardwood program was so unique. There's almost no one there who wasn't a volunteer. Yes. And so that's one indicator. That doesn't mean there isn't pushback and resistance because you don't quite know what the frontier of their willingness is. Mm. And so um, provocation has to always be an interpretive intervention, whatever form that is. But right through to a whole organisation or a community, you know, so we've got case studies in the book of communities who are in deep crisis. You know, the story of an indigenous school in Sherberg, or the story we tell about a kibbutz in Israel that was on the verge of collapse. So the external conditions were absolutely disastrous, and people were at a wit's end. Now, it's much harder to crack 
but there had to be a deep purpose then that connects with where people are at and a willingness to sit in people's stuckness, not to pretend that that stuckness isn't there. Yeah, yeah. Um, 95% of the people who turn up in the room with me didn't volunteer to come along. And mm. I, I ask a very deliberate question, like when you got the email, because a lot of times they just get an email from their L&D team, all well-intentioned to help them grow and learn, but just says, turn up to this thing for two days with this guy, watch this video. And I say, how did you feel when you got that email? Because mm. I think it's important to have that conversation so they can be really honest and go, here's how I felt, I'm a bit disrespected, but also I'm going to get 300 emails in the next two days. And yeah. all these other yeah. things are going to happen. So I think it's a great point that you raise. It's important that as facilitators, we accept that we need to meet people where they're at, which is one of the things that Ron and Marty say. I want to go to, to Alinskyism. There's not a day where in my mind I don't hear his voice in some way or listen to something that he does or refer back to it. I do call him my leadership superhero for, and he goes, you're only doing that to, to distract us from something else that's going on, Mark. And I'm like, no, Marty, it's true. <laughs> he talks about disturbing people at a rate they can tolerate. This is what leadership and, provo and provocations about. Just explore a bit more about that, because when I say that to people about what leadership is, they are horrified. They they say, "No, leadership's about inspiring us and doing all of these wonderful things." What's on your mind when when you replay those words? Well, and, well, a number of things. Um, <laughs> it's lovely to be just a. Caveat, it's lovely to have a conversation for this with someone like you who deeply understands the work because um, uh, we don't have to kind of explain quite so much. But the question is such a powerful one. It really is at the heart of what adaptation is and why provocation is critical. So the status quo doesn't change, is unlikely to change, whether it's an individual, a team, a whole organization or beyond by itself. It needs purposeful action. Uh, every now and again, something does happen externally and things will change. But So that requires a particular kind of leadership that's willing to act in the service of creating positive, constructive disturbance. Yeah. However, we know that people don't learn, consider and grow if you take them too far over the threshold. And so part of the work of Leadership, part of the work of using provocation is to constantly calibrate. It's a bit like a barista. You're regulating the temperature of the steam, the strength of the coffee, yeah, and whether or not the customer wants sugar every now and again. Yep. So, you know, questions of how ready is this group? What's their experience when dealing with pressure and challenge? What are they like together when there is a challenge and a pressure? Do they support each other? Do they leave each other alone? So there are all sorts of signals that give you an idea of what groups of people in whatever format you're working with, what they can tolerate. But it's an experimental act. I mean, you, you know this yourself. After a while, you learn to gauge you know, this, what the signs are. But it's um, a critical principle. You can see it, I think, quite clearly if you look at the micro and macro levels of working at a rate that people can tolerate. We have in the book 
the example of water reform in Australia. And I know as soon as I say that, anybody who's been around it mm. knows angst and strife and pain and loss that's involved. And nobody wants to acknowledge that adaptation involves loss, but we see it very distinctly and clearly, viscerally, in the water reform work. And that is ongoing. And there has been book burning in Australia by otherwise sensible people with the level of passion and indication that people have reached a limit and yet the work wonderfully proceeds and there is progress but it's very uneven so you can see it at that level see the proceeding at a rate that people can tolerate and then um, if you come right back down from that the luxury of working with a group of people in a room where you can all see each other and it's a limited period of time The truth is, as humans, we can actually only take so much disturbance before we start to distract or escape or got to have a phone call. So just in a way, I see it not to um, make light of it, but it's almost a sensibility and politeness to notice, gosh, guys, we've really been plowing at this and there's been a lot of bravery and some scratches going on here, let's just see where we're up to, Um, change the pace, recognise each other as humans, and in this moment, what can we take? And I think as practitioners, we build our own muscle and we can forget what it's like for those who are actually doing work on their own stuff. There's so much gold in there. Um what came to mind, you mentioned loss before, we fear loss much more than we value gain, getting people to understand where, how we're hardwired. And then and then that sort of leads into, I, I do talk to people about at stages, this is going to feel like walking through quicksand. You're going to feel like you're not going anywhere, but they're the moments where I think they're making the most progress when they're sitting with the nothingness and the not knowing and what's next and all these sorts of things. I've got goosebumps at the moment listening to you two. I call this my learning laboratory. This is like 101 learning today or, or relearning some stuff. So thank you. I'm not going to ask you to give away your, your secrets because I actually want people to get the book. The book's out now, but I'm a pretty simple human being and I, and I call this simply practically for the reason, but I also know that there's complexity and complicated stuff going on. You know, Mark from the boy who grew up in Mildura says, it's all pretty bloody simple. Why do we make it so complicated? Why do some humans get romanced by the flame of complexity? I'm interested in both your thoughts around this. You may have a counter thought to this, to what mine is. Why do you think they might love to go to the complicated and the complex before maybe getting above it and seeing what's really going on? Look, come on, as the... um the simple human person. Let's hear from you first on this one. Um, I think that, uh, well, here we go. That's the heart rate's going up now. I reckon that I've heard so many answers to this in 202 episodes, but the one that really rings with me is there's almost like a need for us to be clever and to look clever to come up with something that no one's ever thought about or some other way of doing things. And So there's the cleverness aspect, and then there's another one too. And this came up yesterday, and it reminded me of my thoughts on this with a a lady by the name of Rebecca Horton. We can hide in complexity. 
And I think at times we do that through meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. We can stay in the complexity and sort of bunker down in that before we get to a point and go, well, maybe, maybe there's another way. That's They're my views on it anyway. It's good to hear you say that and it allows me to realise I come from quite a different place. Mm. For me, the world is so complex yep. and I personally enjoy that complexity. It, it's a physical pleasure to be able to, in a way, let things go and look at what's out there and what the connections are and I actually find it to be an incredible resource because if I'm paying attention to what is straightforward and simple and I can comprehend and apprehend, then as useful as that is, I may miss things that will allow me to view from a completely different perspective. And as as you know, we're keen on encouraging people we work with to build multiple perspectives yeah. and to build more and more perspectives in order to come back down to what is sensible and before us. So I see complexity as a friend and a resource. And uh, the fact that it personally thrills me may be an indication that I need to you know, not get lost in it. I just thought quickly before I get some thoughts from you, Michael, that again, that's just opened up my eyes too, because sometimes I can be like, let's just come with me, come with me to Simple Town, because that's where it all happens. And it's like, well, there'll be people in the room who are going, I don't hang out in that place because I I'm more than uncomfortable. I'm distressed if I go there. So I love, I love how you've shared that. I actually had one of my guests send me a very polite note back after they read this point number five on the sheet, going, "I don't have the same view as you. Is that going to be all right?" And I'm like, "Bloody <laughs> oath, it is going to be all right. Come in and come with something different." Michael, your thoughts around this one? Well, I do. I think I do have a slightly different take on why people like to live and stay in complexity or make things more complex. And it's to do with an abdication of responsibility. Yep. That complexity implies that there's a higher order answer. You know, the God complex. Yeah. If only God would appear, we'd be able to find our way through it. And I mean, God can take many different forms, which is why authoritarianism at the moment is so risky and dangerous. You know, someone has described Putin as seeing himself as the 21st century czar. Yeah. So. I think the way to the way for people to translate complexity and practicality is about helping them increase their agency and responsibility. Yeah. Mm. And so the more things appear complex and all the more complex people make them, it's an indication diagnostically that um, we need to help them figure out how they can act. Mm. Not necessarily to make the situation less complex. Uh, uh, amazing. So the books, the book's been launched, the book's available now. Where can the listeners going, because there'll be lots of devotees to adaptive leadership listening to this, and they'll be like, shit, I don't need this book. Where can they Where can they access the book? Well, they can buy it online with Routledge, the publisher. Yes. Who currently, as it happens, has a 30% discount. Nice. They can buy it on Amazon. Online, they can buy it at Dimmicks online or in Dimmicks bookshops and on Booktopia in Australia. 
Lovely. Just quickly too, when that physical book was handed to you, mm. I would love you both to share <laughs> not what you were thinking because because I'm like what was the what was the overarching feeling that came to each of you when the book was handed over? Gosh, you know the books arrived at our house. Michael was out, and a courier came, and it was much earlier than we expected and had all these boxes. And I thought, oh, Michael's been ordering wine again and because <laughs> it was quite heavy. And the guy helped me get them inside. And then I realised that they were. And uh, I just felt really excited and I wanted Michael to come home, so we opened it together. And uh, we ended up taking a photograph of us surrounded by the boxes, you know, with... I think um felt proud, yeah. relieved. Um, it was a bit of a reality check. Actually, we, we really did do this. Look, it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, Michael? Well, similar, but um, kind of a deep satisfaction about our history. You know, we've been talking about writing this for a long time and for all sorts of reasons, some practical, some emotional you know, who, who's interested in our ravings about this esoteric topic of provocation. But <laughs> where it took me as we opened the book was the day we began. And um, we're very fortunate in that we live half the year in Italy. Yes. And in August 2019, we sat on the balcony in beautiful weather and covered four glass sliding doors with post-it notes together brainstorming what this book was going to be about. It was enormous good fun. It was one of the things that we value about each other, our capacity to generate ideas and to get excited by ideas. And so when when I opened the book, I remembered that day and that time we had together generating the ideas for it. <laughs> so good. Um, and if people want to work with you? Well, we've, actually, we've just actually launched a new website, so it's... Kind of around the book. Yeah, www.vantagepoint.net.au. Fantastic. Some words coming to mind as we wrap up. Generosity of spirit, your willingness to serve others, your willingness to accept, as they call your part in the mess when things don't go right. Just that transparency that you've given me and the listeners today. I, I am grateful but also blessed to have had this conversation so i just want to say thank you to both of you and i do hope that we bump into each other not in another eight years so um <laughs> thank you very much and maybe in turn we can say thank you for your interest for reaching out and reconnecting and um obviously we share a passion for the very similar ideas that we're hoping will make a difference mm. Thank you yeah, very thanks, much. Marcus. It's been fun. Really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, your sense of wonder, uh, which is refreshing. Yeah. And you know, in a way, I think this podcast is your way of inviting a wide range of people into the world that you uh, are part of. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Appreciate it. You ever had that feeling where your mind's gone absolutely into overdrive because you're trying to hang off every word that's being said to take the richness that comes out of that. And that's how I was today in this uh, podcast with uh, Maxime and Michael. 
brought back a lot of memories for me from um, the program eight years ago. So I said their willingness to be generous to share and, and be in the service of others to share what they're doing. I love Maxime's um, share about six and seven years of age, seeing herself at that point in time as an outsider looking in. Michael also sharing about living and navigating between two cultures and the power and authority that, that was at conflict there. I loved it when Maxime talked about provocation requiring heart, that provocation can come from a good place and it shouldn't always be assumed that it's a negative thing, but it can be seen as something that's positive. And that's also related to not going too far with it. So don't go too far with provocation because it can turn from something that is useful to something that is harmful reasonably quickly. I loved that little chat when I threw that question in about the system and how the system lurches in the shadows, and it has done that during the pandemic, but it's always ready to bounce back. And it is aided as well as they both shared today by the human beings who who are looking for some of that surety again and, and you know the sameness of what they've always been used to and how provocation can be something that's used to break some of that sameness. Complexity as an incredible resource was what was shared by Maxime. And also for Michael, it was complexity as a way to abdicate responsibility. So just, you know, the curiosity around the different perspectives there and holding others' perspectives other than your own is key. And I think I learned today um, after I'd shared my idea around simplicity and Maxime said, well, that's something that perhaps that I've learned today or she'd learned today, which, which was nice to hear, that if you're going to do this work, you're going to need the energy for it and be careful of what they call the false start change, that you're really not up for it. And they, it was a lovely story to be shared by both of them about the, the proposal they did and, and how it just didn't align. Sitting in your stuckness or walking through quicksand, as I call it, meeting people where they're at, that we need to create more crisis in order to make progress. And as Michael said from the early days when they worked together in that sort of family counselling, is that humans are far more capable to absorb discomfort than we give them credit for. Some of the Linskyisms that came up, that the fear of loss over the value of gain, relentless optimism and brutal realism, the whole idea of disappointing people to a point that they can absorb it, and there's so many other great shares today that I'll as I said, too many to mention. My mind was in overdrive, and I'm sure you picked a few other things up. Um, don't forget to check out their book at Routledge, and it's www.routledge.com, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E. And at the moment, there's a 30% discount on that book. And let me tell you, it'll be worth getting if you are a human being who is looking for a different way to make progress. Well, then I think this could be it. Hey, if you love this one, why not rate it five stars? Leave us a little comment as to why. If you liked it, share it with your friends. Share it with people who are ready to make a shift, to move out of the sameness, um, but at the same time, understanding that it's going to take some work to do that. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now. Bye.